If you haven't had a chance uh, to, to connect with Aaron about this trip, unbelievable trip, clearly an unbelievable girl. God has his hands on that girl and just continues to teach her very wise things. I love um, all of the talk about that um, just we're inadequate, right? And so let's begin tonight just all claiming together that we've got nothing going for us besides the cross of Christ. Not a thing going for us. But what a blessing that we've gathered here to learn more about the hope that we have, right? And so last week, friends, we saw Jesus in a great, very promising and encouraging message to the disciples says, I am going to come back. I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to return. And he said this about his word. He said, you must hope in my word because my word never fails. And you remember last week, then he says, look, it's going to be easy to get distracted. You're going to be weighed down by the anxieties of this life. And so what you're to do in the meantime is you are to watch and you are to pray. You are to never tire in waiting because at the moment that you tire of waiting, then your heart will just be weighed down with shame and condemnation, my friends. So how have you done the last week? Are you tired of waiting or with a great confidence in the Lord? Have you been just, oh, what God, I'm waiting patiently. I'm living as if you were going to come today. I can't wait for your return. And when you return, I won't be surprised, right? And so that's where we left off. Now, if you're just joining us, we're going through verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And tonight, um, each week I feel like I stand up and say that things are escalating. And so why not not say it again here tonight? Things are escalating. The story is getting deeper. And friends, tonight, I've been so overwhelmed, even all day today, about the theological, doctrinal, life truths in this passage that I hope and pray that your heart is ready to go. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, please. We're going to be starting in verse 1 of this um, just beautiful passage. It's a classic passage. Uh, if you've grown up in the church at all, this is a passage that's been referred to. Um, if if you uh, come from a Catholic background, this passage is referred to um, some way, in some form, just about every week and just about every day. If you grew up in a Christian tradition and a, uh, a Christian uh, denomination, then you've heard this story a lot tonight, my friends. I pray that God will breathe fa- fresh wind and fresh fire on this. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now, the feast of unleavened bread... Which is, that just sounds nasty, doesn't it? It's like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here in America, we don't call feasts, and the, like, we don't order unleavened bread from Papa John's. You know what I mean? Like, when we have a feast, it's not, we'll, we'll explain what this is here in a second. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Isn't it interesting to you guys that over and over and over these chief priests and teachers of the law are trying to find ways to get rid of Jesus and the scriptures keep telling us that they're afraid of the people. It's interesting, isn't it, to be such a people pleaser and yet on the same token have this very distinct agenda. It's like they want to please the people because they're supposed to be these religious greats but at the same time they want to kill the one who's claiming to be the Messiah. It's like they're caught up desperately between this great chasm of people-pleasing and an agenda. And over and over and over, the Scripture says, they were afraid of the people. And why are they afraid of the people? Because the people have gathered for the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, my friends, we're going we're to take a historical glance 
at what this feast is. Are you ready? Here we go. The Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the very first of the three major feasts in the Jewish culture, okay? The first was the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, which the Passover was on the 14th day of, Nis- uh, of Nisan, which is the Hebraic calendar, okay? Then uh, after that was the, 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 feast of the, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second festival was the, pe- was the Pentecost, or in other places of Scripture, it's called the Feast of Weeks. There's about 50 days between the Passover and the Feast of Weeks. The last of the three is the Feast of Tabernacles, If you're a male in Jewish culture, you are required to go to Jerusalem for these three feasts. Now, interesting, isn't it, that as we've been studying the scriptures, we see that Jesus has been on a journey from where? From Galilee to Jerusalem. And along that journey, the crowd is what? It's thickening. Why is it growing? It's growing because Josephus says in the time of the Passover, there's going to be like 100 thousand people in Jerusalem. A lot of people. Why? They're gathered there to celebrate the Passover. So as Jesus is journeying down towards Jerusalem, my friends, and people and crowds are beginning to grow, it's because they're migrating to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? The celebration is a celebration when families would gather all throughout the city And they would go through this ritual. A part of the ritual was they would kill and sacrifice in the temple a sacrificial lamb. They would then cook the lamb and roast the lamb and bring it to this central kind of meeting place. And then at that point, gathered with the the rest of the family, they would go through this kind of meal tradition. The meal tradition, I put up the slide, looked like this. Uh, Those are each step of the meals. There's some great children name up, up there, isn't there? Right? Yeah. Ratcha. Matza. You know? Yeah, yeah. But this is the order. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these, but I want to describe to you what would happen in this meal. A part of the meal, the family would gather, and they would, first, they would would bless, um, they would just say some blessings. They would communicate great um, passages of old. They would uh, wash their hands to cleanse. There was a, a, a moment where the, the, the head of the table, uh, and in, this, in our story tonight, Jesus would, would, would break the matzah bread, the unleavened bread. It's kind of like a cracker. And they would eat it. There was a moment where they would eat um, uh, um, kind of nasty herbs, right, and spices. There was a moment when they ate the roasted lamb. So this meal is all of, of, a, of, a, of a progression, a very... A very um, orderly progression of celebrating this very ancient tradition. Now, at the height of this dinner, a son or a daughter, someone young, would say, Dad, for instance, why do we celebrate the Passover? Or better, why is this day different from all of the other days? And at this point in the story, the dad, whoever was sharing, would go through the history of why it is that they celebrate the Passover. And why is it that they celebrate the Passover? They celebrate the Passover because the Jews were placed in slavery by Pharaoh for 400 years. And you'll remember in Exodus, God raises up a man named who? A man named Moses. God raises up this great man named Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says what? Let my people go, you know. And over and over and over and ten plagues later... They're still at, this, at these odds, uh, Moses and Pharaoh. On the tenth plague, 
God says, Look, listen, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh that I'm going to kill every firstborn, uh, every, every firstborn male in all the families. Amidst all of that, he gave a promise to Moses. I want you to go back and I want you to tell your people to kill a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to wipe it over the doorposts. And when my angel of death or my spirit comes down and I begin to kill anywhere where there's a lamb's blood over the doorpost, I will pass over. Passah is the Hebrew word for pass over. I will not go in. I will not kill. And so that night, as many of you guys who have ever seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you'll know, remember the great fog that comes down? It's like green. It's weird, right? This green fog kind of comes down and one by one, the spirit or the, the angel of death kills, but to some saves if the lamb blood was on the doorpost. So 3,000 plus years of celebrating this ancient, uh, this ancient tradition. Now we begin to understand why Pontius Pilate and Herod are in Jerusalem. If you've got 100,000 or so Jews in Jerusalem, it would draw some leadership because what would often happen is there would be an uprising. And so you would need the Romans there because just in case there was some religious you know, uprising and there was a need of some leadership there. So now we know that at the end of this story, at the end of Jesus' life, right? Before he's, uh, before he's killed and then resurrected when he has to go before Herod and go before Pilate. They are there because of this festival. How many of you guys like Fourth of July? Okay, perfect. It's our Independence Day, like. Some of you unpatriotic people in here, or what? We're like, I don't know, it's, it's cool, you know? Now, on 4th of July, if you happen to mosey out of your back door, let's say 4 p.m., like, what do you smell on the 4th of July? Anybody? Barbecue. Anyone like to smell barbecue? Please? Okay. Yes. It's, it's like you begin to associate the smell of barbecue with the 4th of July. That's why, like, Pavlov's dogs... Like we just barbecue on 4th of July. That's what we do. I need you guys to be here in this moment. You as a Jew are celebrating your freedom. You're celebrating the fact that God brought you out of slavery and that He's freed you. That He saved your firstborn males. The males in the ancient tradition would actually fast the day before just to prepare their hearts. So, can you imagine... Jews all over the city of Jerusalem, 100,000 plus, all roasting lambs. As a young child, you would walk out of your door and you would say, it's Passover. Because, like I was trying to find um, lamb roaster candles at Pottery Barn, but they didn't have any. You know, I was trying to, like, recreate the smell for us, but we can imagine, you know. Think of it. As a child, you would walk out and instantly you would say, it's Passover. Friends, it's a celebration. Um, when I was growing up, there was this thing called the Gladiola Festival. Any of you guys know what a gladiola is? Awesome. Yeah, it's a flower. Okay, so three of us. And in this flower, my, my grandfather grew them. There's like a lot of flowers. Uh, it's in the town where my mom grew up. Every year when I was growing up, we did the same thing. You would go to the parade. My very first uh, float that I was in, I was a trash man. It was pretty sweet. Like, you know, dressed up in grungy clothes and just did the trash thing. It was awesome. And during the day, you would, go, you would go to the parade, and all the high school people would see each other. And then at night, 
there would be this huge festival. There would be all these rides and all these things that you would go on. It was a routine. I came to know it. If you are a Jewish child and it comes to Passover time, my friends, you know that it's there because of the smells, because of the sounds, because of the ritual that your family went through. Everyone in their perspective um, houses and homes are all celebrating the same thing, all going through the same dinner ritual, all focused on the fact that they are now free. They would recite psalms. They would wash their hands. There was four steps to the meal. They would drink the wine, friends. Put yourself there. Celebrating this ancient tradition. Because if you and I miss the ancient tradition, then we miss the Lord's Supper completely. Because on this night, Jesus with his boys, is going to celebrate an ancient tradition. But there's going to be something different that happens in this night. Oh, yes. There's going to be a shift that takes place. So before we move anywhere else, I need each of you to smell the roasted lamb. To understand that unleavened bread was used because when they left Egypt, they didn't have time to put leaven in their bread. And so they just grabbed the yeast and they rolled And then they ended up cooking it on the desert floor oftentimes, eating it like crackers. That's why they ate matzah. So all of this dinner, friends, 3,000 years, every Passover, the first religious festival was getting together and going through this ritual. Are you there? Can you smell it? Can you hear the noises in the streets? Can you hear the people celebrating and people getting excited about this routine that they would go through? It's a beautiful tradition. But amidst all of it, the Scripture says this, In verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Perfect. You know? It's like, like, hold on a second. Celebrating, festive, roasted lamb, all the smells. Then Satan entered Judas. It's like, what is... This should raise a lot of questions in your mind, shouldn't it? It's like, hold on a second. Satan entering Judas... Like, what are the implications here? Can we, can, I, can we work through this together? First of all, we need to get a, be, a, a great picture of the way the Gospels portray Judas. Okay? Judas is this guy over and over in the Scriptures. Every time that the disciples are listed, you know where Judas is listed? At the bottom, my friends. In John chapter 12, he's called a thief. Luke chapter 6, he's called a traitor, my friends. In that same idea of Luke chapter six, or, or John chapter 6, Jesus says, one among you is A devil. He calls him a devil. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Does anyone know where Jesus went before he chose the disciples? He went on a mountainside and he what? He prayed. Then he comes down and he chooses the disciples. All 12 of them. This is where it gets tricky. So hold on a second. Jesus chooses Judas to be his disciple despite all throughout the Gospels calling him a betrayer and a traitor, knowing full well that in the end it would be Judas who would betray Jesus. Like, what is happening here? Why in the world would would Jesus choose a betrayer to be one of the disciples? It's hard sometimes when when all you got to say is to the glory of God, isn't it? But there's still questions. The question is, Satan entering Judas? Like, should you and I be fearful of just at any whim that Satan could enter us? Let me tell you something. 
Because the Gospels portray Judas over and over and over as, as dabbling with his sin nature. If you begin without the protection of Jesus, in other words, if you're not in relationship with Christ and you begin to dabble in the spiritual realm without an awareness, without an understanding that at every moment, my friends, there is a spiritual war that's happening even over this moment now, then, then we're ignorant. Now listen to this. I want to read a passage for you from Ephesians chapter 2. Scripture says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Do you guys remember when we talked about the two kingdoms? And we said that there's a kingdom of the air and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the air is whose kingdom? It's Satan's kingdom. He rules over the earth. He's been allowed by God to rule over the earth. He's been allowed to live so that in the end, Jesus could take his heel and crush the head of the serpent. But listen to this, because he's the kingdom of the air, the scripture says this, the spirit of who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I need to tell you guys a very strong fact tonight. That for those of you that do not have the protection of Christ, in other words, you're you're not in relationship with Jesus. There's only two kingdoms in our universe. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the air. There's only one kingdom that you'll serve. You'll serve the kingdom of God or you'll serve the kingdom of the air. And so, my friends, without the protection of Jesus, can I tell you something? There are some of you tonight that are being influenced and guided by the kingdom of the air. It's dangerous. Your only hope your only protection, your only stronghold is the person and work of Jesus. So Judas, whether he's possessed by Satan or clearly influenced by the Spirit which is now causing him to be disobedient, either way, God allows Satan to enter Judas called Iscariot who would be the eventual betrayer of Christ. Can I tell you something tonight? We need to start taking the spiritual realms a whole lot more seriously. You only serve one master, And so tonight you feel like, I'm just out of control. Like I just can't stop sinning. There's no no way out. Is it possible that you're so under control of the kingdom of the air that it's time to turn to Jesus? Because under the protection of Jesus, Satan has no hope, right? Under the protection of the Christ, my friends, the enemy does not even have a chance. Even in our lives here and now. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And so Satan comes and enters Judas, verse 4. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Is anyone else troubled by the word delighted? These guys are delighting in the fact that they're getting ready to kill the Messiah. As I was reading this word delighted a couple days ago, I was just like, can we just, the weight of that word, they're delighted in it. It was about this time that I was like, man, I'm, like, in, in light of this passage, I'm doing pretty good. Like, I'm not a Judas. Like, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver like this. Can I remind each of you of something? At the very root of sin, at the moment tonight when we begin to disconnect from Judas, you must be reminded of something. At the very root of sin is betrayal. Do you guys remember the garden? 
You remember what happened in the garden as Adam and Eve sinned. Friends, at the very core and the root of your sin nature is betrayal. Is going against Christ and God as a traitor and joining forces with one who doesn't care a rip about you. And so at the very core of our sin nature is this idea of betrayal. You have betrayed. I have betrayed. We are in nature betrayers, my friend. But oh, the gospel that takes our nature of betrayal, the idea of you and I's disconnect and ability to be a traitor towards the gospel, and Jesus says, now I will become your covering. And so, friends, at the moment tonight when you begin, may you be reminded that at your core, at your sin nature, you were born into this idea of being a betrayer. That scripture goes on. Look at this. In uh, verse uh, 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Again, the crowds are great. There's a great celebration going around, right? So to choose a time where no one, when no crowd was present was critical. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. <laughs> 33 years of ministry by Christ. 3,000 plus years of history. And the scripture says, then came the day. Does anyone else just not love that passage? All of it is heightening to this moment when a drastic shift is about to happen in a 3,000 plus year old tradition and the scripture says, then came the day. It was as, it was as if all of history was waiting It was as if everything was hinging on this moment. It was as if, like we've said many times, the entire Old Testament was pointing to Christ. And my friends, it was for a moment such as this. The day and the moment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread had arrived. Verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Why Peter and John? If you're one of the other disciples, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, wait a minute, you know what I mean? Let me put a little Matthew in it, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, what's the deal here? Like, why are you segregating? You remember the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, who was there? Peter, James, and John, it's clear all throughout the Gospels that three guys are the closest, specifically one, closest to Jesus. And so in this case, he sends these two individuals to make preparations, and friends, can we agree there was some preparations to be made? The lamb had to be sacrificed. The wine had to be gathered. The cups had to be set. The matzah had to be made. All of these preparations had to be made to celebrate this. the day had come. Now look at this. This just gets... Mm. Verse 9. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Which is a great question. If everyone in the city is celebrating, there's like minimal space here, you know? Everyone in their own town. And we saw, where, was, where has Jesus been staying? He's been staying on the Mount of Olives, okay? So he's come to Jerusalem. It's not like he's, he has like some hotel in Jerusalem that, you know, he's come to Jerusalem. And so they're asking very, like, like where, where are we supposed to do this? Like, what, what are we supposed to do? Uh, verse 10, he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. No offense, ladies, but in ancient tradition, a woman would be carrying a jar, typically. And so for Jesus to even start off by saying, a man will be carrying a jar... It's already heightening their, their interest. They're like, a man carrying a jar? 
Could it be that he's just trying to make it so obvious because the crowd is so great? Follow him to the house that he enters, verse 11, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 12, he will show you a large, what's the word there? Upper room. If, you're a, if you grew up anywhere near the church, you've heard this word, upper room. For me, the word has been disconnected a lot from my life. It's been a word that was like this mystique, upper room, like this idea of this great magical place. Jerusalem, the night, everyone celebrating. And they're there in this one particular room, in this one particular time in history, my friends. Go to the upper room, verse 12. He will show you and make a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. Now, to make the preparations, like we've said, there would be all kinds of things. Now, this table isn't exactly like it would have been, but it would have been a table with some cups and some wine and, and some matzah. There would have been a cushions around. There would have been a small table near the ground so that they could recline near it. All these preparations have been made. Verse 13. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. There's a lot of questions about if Jesus knew this owner of the house before, if they had like pre-set up this idea and he had just told, or if this is just Jesus' sovereignty, this is, hey, here's how it's going to be, boys, and they, they find it just how it is. Either way, the house is just as Jesus said, verse 14. What's the first word there? When the what? When the hour came. When we just started reading the scripture a little bit ago, we said when the day had come. Can we get a little bit more specific? Now the hour has come. 3,000 plus years of history and the next moments the entire history of you and I's existence changes right here, right now and unless we understand the Jewish Passover meal we will miss the next verses then the hour had come Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table the reason why they would recline just like everything else on this list of things, is very intentional. They would recline because a slave stands. But a free man reclines. Are you guys with me? A free man relaxes. A free man sits back and is laid boy on that. I mean, a free man sits back. A slave stands, a free man reclines. Everything that they did in this night represents something that went back to the days of Moses in Exodus. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My Bible has red letters there. That means Jesus is saying this. I have eagerly desired. Listen to this. The Greek phrasing there is better translated. I have eagerly desired and really, really eagerly desire and really, really eagerly desire to eat, with, eat this meal with you before I suffer. In other words, like I really, 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 really want to be here right now. Literally. That's the Greek. I really want to be here before I what? Before I suffer. In Luke chapter 18, right before blind Bartimaeus, we, said, we saw that Jesus said, I'll be mocked, I'll be flogged, I'll be insulted, and I will die. Friends, he is headed to Jerusalem to die. He's headed to Jerusalem to suffer. And all the while, he says, look, right here, right now, I want to be fully present. If you knew that you were going to die in 24 hours, would it be a little bit difficult to be fully present anywhere? But he said, look, I eagerly desire to be right here, right now. No distractions. This hour has come. All of the history of everything is right here, right now. 
So look at this. Uh, verse 17. Or verse 16, excuse me. For I tell you, I will not eat again. I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now we studied this before. What he's saying is, is I will not eat this meal again. This is the last time until Revelation 19.9, the messianic banquet. I'm not going to eat of this meal again until it's all over and I come back. So this is another great position of his. Look, boys, I'm going to die and I know it. Look at this. He goes on. Verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. Now, if you're um, uh, from a Catholic tradition, what, what do you call communion? Anyone? The what? The Eucharist. Now, the Greek word Eucharist is this word that's, that's defined as giving thanks. And so if you grew up in the, in the Catholic tradition, or if any of you have heard, ever heard the word Eucharist, they call communion Eucharist because of the giving thanks that's associated with it. When he gave thanks, he, 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 um, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, this is the first of the four Passover rhythms. The first of the four would be to take the wine and to pass it around. And at this point, all the disciples would be saying, this is exactly how it normally goes. Like, we've done this a lot. In fact, I've grown up in this tradition, so we've done this a lot. Like, this is normal. Jesus spreads the wine across, and we're all going to drink, and He's given thanks my friends. And he says again, I will not drink of this vine until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Amazing. Verse 19. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're a Jew and you've grown up celebrating the Passover, can we agree that all of a sudden the Passover has just taken a major shift? You know the rhythm. You know the way it goes. You know what comes next. If you're a disciple at the table right now, you had to like do a double take. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of what? Of me, he says. Not in remembrance of Egypt anymore. Not in remembrance of what I did then. Now you remember me. You know that the entire Old Testament was pointing to me. My friends, this blows my mind. It's so overwhelming that in one minute of history, everything changes. Everything has been building up to this moment and then he breaks it and he says, this is my body that's been given for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And friends, if you're a disciple like me, you're sitting around like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a major, major shift. Over and over, you and I take communion. And we come to the table and we take it so frivolously and we take it so lightly. My friends, can you understand that the Lord's Supper has significance rooted 3,500 plus years in history and in one moment changes so that we would be able to see the significance of Christ? All the while, while teachers of the law are delighting in plotting against Him. Friends, well, look at this. 
This is beautiful. Look at this. This next verse, he says, In the same way, after the supper, this might have been after they ate the roasted lamb, which is about halfway through the supper, he takes the cup and he says this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know the word covenant if you're a Jew. The word covenant, if you're a Jew, roots way back. You guys remember in Genesis chapter 12, what did God tell Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make your nation great. Throughout the entire book of Genesis, he's making covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He says, this is what? The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If you're a disciple at this point, you're like, whoa. The new covenant and synapses and things are starting to go off in their heart and in their mind. Look at this. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with, is, is with mine now at this table. My friends, the new covenant completely now grabs the old covenant and brings it all into, into summation. Jesus takes this idea of the old covenant that God would be steady and, and rock and would just be this rock and this fortress and that we would be connected with the law. And he says, now I am the law. Now I am the new covenant. Now I am the one that you need to be connected to to stand before God and not pious old covenant acts. The beauty of the Lord's Supper is thousands of years of history that all of a sudden Jesus speaks, I am the one. And now, in 24 hours or less, you'll see it because my blood will be dripped down. My friends, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what does Paul say? He has become our Passover lamb. He, Christ, became the Passover lamb. The blood that we would cling to so that God would pass by and see us as righteous. The sights, the sounds, the smells. Can you put yourself in this room right now? Can you imagine hearing this for the first time? You've gone through this routine over and over and over, and you watch the Savior say, I am the new covenant. Then he says, look, the hand that's going to betray me is sitting right here at this table. Verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, I thought you chose Judas. Jesus, I thought you prayed before you chose the disciples. So now you're saying woe to that man who betrays him? Jesus, you knew from the beginning that Judas will betray you. When Peter stands up in front of the church in Acts chapter 1, when they choose Matthias, where we get our name as a church, what does Peter say? Judas did as Scripture had foretold. Can I tell you guys something? God's sovereignty does not negate personal responsibility. 
the sovereignty of a great God never, through the entire scriptures, ever negates personal responsibility. You and I, my friends, are dead in our transgressions without Christ. And we, as individuals, will be held responsible. You see, the problem with Judas is this. Is Judas thought somehow that by association, he had salvation. Association never implies salvation. Just because you come to church here and there's what you think is some Bible-believing people here means nothing for your salvation. Just because your family members and your mom and dad are strong doesn't mean a hill of beans when it comes to your heart and your salvation, my friends. Just because you have this, this friend of yours that talks to you all the time about the Scriptures means nothing. Your heart needs to be surrendered to the gospel of grace. And at that point, my friends, when we're held responsible, he will say, I know you because I was your Passover lamb. Association never implies salvation. And so, my friends, can I tell you something tonight? The sovereignty of God that would build history to this moment and He would speak words of truth escalates our need of Jesus. Amen? He says everything that's ever been written in the Scriptures is now fulfilled in me. And so this meal becomes the remembrance of when His covenant began. The new covenant in His blood. And now friends, this is you and I in this next verse. Verse 23. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. You've just been told like some of the most theologically, like some of the most brilliant stuff you've ever heard. You've been waiting for this moment. And they're like, turn around. Dude, is it you? Are you going to... I know that whole line that new covenant, that was cool, you know. But is it you? We have the same same temptation, don't we? Can I remind you again? You will all betray. You have all betrayed. There is no need for a single one of us to question tonight. There's no need for any of us to look at at one another. So is it going to be you? It is you. It has been you. You are apart from Christ, completely separated. A betrayer a traitor, every one of us. It is you. There's no need to question tonight. And so brilliantly, in the, lower, in the Lord's Supper, in the Last Supper, we have the hope of Christ. And so when we come to the table, it's not some ritualistic Jewish celebration of our freedom of slavery from Egypt. It's a passionate understanding of our freedom through Christ from sin. And I tell you what, in the physical, it's one thing to be a slave. In the spiritual, it's another thing to be a slave to our sin. And He is that freedom through being the new covenant. My friends, this meal tonight is a celebration of Jesus, of history escalating to this moment that you and I would be able to eat and drink and say, God, I am free. This is a meal for believers. This is a meal for people that have said, you know what? Association means nothing when it comes to salvation. Just because Judas was around the disciples means nothing. Clearly, him and Jesus were not in a relationship and he will will be held responsible for that. 
And so my friends, tonight is an opportunity for you and I to rest in the strength of the strong theology of the new covenant, of the blood of Christ that sanctifies us, that makes us whole, that brings us in union with Jesus. And so tonight, this meal, as we partake together, and I pray that it has whole new meaning for you tonight. I pray that you can remember that Jesus said, I've eagerly desired to be here with you in this meal so that I could share these things with you. Here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to ask first tonight, after we examine our hearts, after we repent of our sin, after we ask God to forgive us of all the ways that we've so easily betrayed Him, I'm going to ask first tonight that the Lot family leaders come and take this meal from this table. And then after that point, all the Lot family leaders are going to spread out somewhere along the front. And after examining your heart and allowing the weight of this truth to sit on your heart, I'm going to ask that you would go to your Lot family leader and take communion tonight. The celebration of the Passover was a family feast. And tonight we're going to feast as a family. Tonight, if you're not a part of a Lot family, I'm just going to ask you to pick one of the nine couples, or the nine opportunities, and just come up and take communion. And so friends, as we respond tonight, may we be reminded that the new covenant is here and now. Freedom through the blood of Christ drip down from a cross saying that you and I can be made righteous through the person of Jesus. So let's respond tonight, friends, in heart, the passion, and a great understanding of the grace of God. After the Lot family leaders come up, then you guys are all welcome to respond.